And so, Father, we do remember this time. It was a time to it's a time to reflect on who you are and what you have accomplished and, and all that you have done on our behalf, Father. And Father, I pray that this would be a meaningful time, Father, of getting into your word and, and remembering, Father, we would walk away free people. Free because you have liberated us, Father. Free because you are good. Free because you are love, Father. And so let us, uh, let us put aside all this past baggage, that we carry around with us, Father, the, the, the remnants of the death that we once had, Father, before we put our trust in you and let us live freely now because you have risen from the grave. Amen? Amen. Father, give us, uh, give us your words of insight this morning. Father, open our hearts and open our minds to receive your word. We do ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Hey, how many of you have a uh, tradition of dying Easter eggs in your household? This is a tradition that uh, I have had since I was a child. It's a tradition my wife had, and so we've adopted it for our household as well. She had always uh, taken those dyed Easter eggs in her household, and she hid them throughout the house and throughout the yard as, as part of the fun of the Easter festivities. And so a couple of years ago, we adopted this as well in our household as well. And so she, she would always make mention that they could never actually find all the eggs, however, you know, they had like 20, 24 eggs, and they could only ever find 23 of them. So there's always one that had gone missing. And, and a, couple of, a couple of the eggs they eventually found years later even in their house. And, uh, and they would shake them, and the yolk had turned to, to a solid rock. And so you could use a little rattle, right? So if you don't find your egg, something is going to happen. But in this case, no harm done, really. Just a, a rattling egg. And so a couple of years ago, we adopted this tradition in our household, and so we hide our dyed Easter eggs. And of course, after about an hours of looking for this egg, we couldn't find the 24th egg. It had gone missing somewhere. And, and of course, Emily nor her mother, who helped her hide the eggs, could remember where that 24th egg was. And so there it is. It's, uh, it's missing. But really, it's just a dyed egg, and it might turn hard after a while, so really no harm done. So we go about our lives. Two months later, we take a trip to Minnesota for on vacation, where I'm from. And, uh, and we come back from this trip about 10 days later, and we just, we notice that on our kitchen floor are all these little black pellets. We didn't exactly know what the pellets were. Um, we thought there were maybe mice droppings, and so we, what do we do? We, we begin to set traps, and we and we clean up the mice droppings, and we put them in the, uh, in the garbage can, and we go about our, our evening. I put the kids upstairs to bed, and then I come back downstairs, and, and I notice that there are just a ton of flies in our house. Kind of, kind of an odd thing. There are just flies everywhere. And, and I don't mean just a couple of flies. I mean like 60 flies. I didn't even have a fly swatter, and so I had to roll up a magazine. I go about hitting all these flies, and I counted about 60 that I killed that night. I'm like, oh man, this is, this is horrible. What, what's taking place? And so I, I go to bed and I, uh, I wake up the next morning and lo and behold, our floor is covered in these little black pellets again. And our countertops are covered in these little black pellets. And, and I look over at our back door and it's just covered in flies. And then I look up at the, at the, at the lights in our kitchen and they're just swarming with flies. I'm like, what's going on? And so what do I do? I, I go about killing flies. It's like the plague, right? It, it, absolutely, the plague infested our house. <clears throat> I kid you not, for the next five days, three times a day, I would kill 50 to 100 flies. I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't even home all day, and I was just ki- constantly killing flies. And this is the case because flies, a female fly, 
will produce 500 larvae over a four-day period. We eventually discovered that, of course, those little black pellets weren't mice droppings. They were fly larvae, right? And they were reproducing at a very mass rate. 500 larvae per fly over four days. Throwing them in the trash didn't help. Thank you. Yeah, so they would just hatch and they would come out of the trash can. <laughs> we, we had no idea where the flies were coming from. Uh, we were going to find out, though. So I, I kept killing flies for five days. And we noticed, eventually, Emily claimed she's the one who remembered, uh, of course, noticed it, this, this awful smell in our kitchen. And after about five days of killing flies, we finally found the lost egg. It was hidden in this container in our <clears throat> on our counter where we put our ladles and our wooden spoons. Why anybody would hide an egg there, I don't know, but, you know, it's the brains of my wife and her mom. They put it there, and so we, we didn't know the egg was there, and so we weren't as gentle with putting our spoons back in there as we probably should have been, you know, knowing there was an egg in there. And so what do we do? We crack the egg, and it's rotting there for months and months and months. We go away on vacation for 10 days, come back, and there's a smell. And this egg had become a breeding ground for the flies. And they were feeding on the decay and the rot and the death that was this egg. And they were finding strength from it to multiply and to generate more larvae. And they were finding strength and they were feeding off of it. And all of a sudden our house was infested with these flies. And flies are gross, right? You might have heard the rumor that flies throw up on everything they land on. <laughs> they live in trash. They're, they're gross. They carry with them the death by which they feed on. They carry with them the strength of the thing by which they feed on. And they leave it wherever they go. And so in our household, this imagery of the fly and the infestation became this imagery of death and the power of sin to multiply and to regenerate and to, and to carry with it death and decay and rot everywhere it goes. When I used to work at uh, Bethel University, there was one student in particular that I met with almost daily. I'm not going to tell you her name uh, for the sake of anonymity, but uh, she would come into my office daily and she would lament about her life. And she would oftentimes cry over her life when she found the strength to be emotional. She would tell me stories about why her life was the way it is. When she was young, um, her mom abused her. She hit her physically, but she also abused her emotionally. She told her that she was worthless and no good and that nobody was ever going to like her. She was never going to get married because she was ugly. That she didn't finally put some makeup on or start dressing differently. Nobody was ever going to befriend this girl. She had a twin brother, and all of her brother's friends uh, would make fun of her as well. And she loved her brother dearly. Twi twins have this incredible connection that is that is otherworldly, and we don't even comprehend it uh, for those of us who aren't twins, but she loved her brother dearly, and he sided with his friends. That you are ugly, and that you are worthless, and no one's ever, you're never going to amount to anything, you're never going to accomplish anything, that's all you are is worthless and ugly, and no one is ever going to like you, no one is ever going to love you. And so this girl would come into my office as a college student, and she would just sit there, and she would weep when she found the strength to weep, and she would just lament over her life. <laughs> And uh, for those of you who have seen um, the movie Good Will Hunting, you know, Robin Williams' character, he, he, he takes Will around the shoulder and he says, it's not your fault. And I totally stole that. <laughs> and, and, I, and I approach this girl, I'm like, it's not your fault. 
and I just repeat it. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. And I, and I, and I just repeat it, and, and slowly but surely, this girl just breaks down, and she weeps, and she cries. We had to um, call the cops many, many times on this girl because she had uh, either attempted or was planning to commit suicide. She had experienced uh, how death and sin carry themselves into the world. That the sin that her mom thrusted upon her and the sin that her brother thrusted upon her, she experienced the death and the frustration and the chaos of that. And it burdened her to the point where she no longer wanted to be alive. And she held on to these past experiences. And she couldn't forgive her mom, and she couldn't forgive her brother, because all she knew of them was pain and death and sin and what they brought to her. And how many of us are walking around with this problem of being anchored to our pasts? Right? Maybe we have this hatred for certain people because of what they did in the past, and we just can't give it up. Uh, We can't walk freely into the future. We can't see a different future because all we know is to be angry. We're anchored to our past mistakes, maybe. And we suffer through the guilt and the shame of doing things once upon a time, and we are still tethered to them, and we cannot walk freely into the future because of how our past was lived. And how many of us stuff that guilt and that shame deep down inside because we believe that the, the only way to deal with them is to be emotional, and the world looks at our emotions as weakness. And so we, we don't want to be timid and weak, and we don't want to express ourselves because the world's going to laugh at us. Well, the world's going to say, you're weak, and it's going to point its finger. And not only that, but certainly the God who is almighty and all-powerful doesn't want to hear my complaints and my woes, and so we, we keep them hidden from him as well. How many of us walk around carrying death and sin with us because we are bound to its authority? We haven't been able to let it go, and we're bound to its authority, and so we carry it with us everywhere we go, and we heap it upon other people as we interact with them, and we heap it upon other people because we don't know any better, because that's what's authority, that's what our authority is, that's what's mastering us, is a sin, and this is death, and that's all we know to do is to heap it upon the world and to bring it with us everywhere we go. If you have your Bibles open, open them up to uh, Genesis, uh, John 11. We're going to look at a story about resurrection to hopefully address some of these issues this morning. John is about three-fourths of the way through your Bible. If you don't have a Bible this morning and you'd like one, please come and find us in the information table in the back. We'd be happy to get you one as a gift from us. Otherwise, you can download the app version. It's a free Bible app. It has tons of versions on there. It's a great way to carry the Bible with you everywhere you go. I'm not going to address every verse of John 11 this morning, but I will pause at certain times and offer some perspective. I want to address these issues, the issues of letting the past shape us, of being too uh, timid to really cry, and being bound to sin's authority. And I want to do this by telling a story of resurrection. It begins with this, John 11.1. It says, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village where Mary and her sister Martha lived. And so right now we get this uh, description that there are two sisters There are two sisters who both are experiencing great anguish at the sickness and the eventual death of their brother, Lazarus. 
Both Mary and Martha hold the same belief that Jesus, if he were present, would have the capability to heal their brother. But they respond to the situation in very different ways. And so Jesus needs to come alongside them in very different ways to comfort them and to console them through this experience of loss and pain. Verse 2, Mary would later pour perfume on the Lord. She would also wipe Jesus' feet with her hair. It was her brother Lazarus who was sick in bed. So the sisters sent a message to Jesus. Lord, they told them, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory. God's son will receive glory because of it. Now the truth is that this sickness does eventually end in death for Lazarus. He was actually probably dead by the time this letter even reached Jesus. But Jesus is very deliberate to tie this statement of Lazarus' sickness, not resulting in death, with the proclamation that in this experience, God will be glorified. Now, glory is one of those Christian terms that a lot of us use in church contexts like this, but nobody really understands what glory means. It's kind of one of those terms where it's like, oh, glory, well, okay, it's, it's kind of to be held in high honor. It's um, to be esteemed, maybe, and these are all appropriate uh, description of what glory is, perhaps. But in John's gospel, the closer parallel to glory is authority. That's what John really wants us to, to understand, is that authority is going to be given to Jesus because of this experience. And so remember, we live in a world where death prevails, right? Where death wins, where death is the victory, where death is the master, where sin reigns. Death and sin, they have mastery over individuals and systems, and death and sin, they are the ones who are sitting on the throne. They are the king. They hold the authority over the world. But notice that Jesus comes along on the scene, and he says that somehow through this experience of Lazarus dying, that somehow that authority that is deaths and sins is going to be transferred upon Jesus. That he's going to reclaim the authority that is rightfully his. Somehow death and sin will lose their mastery and reign as God takes it up. And so the sickness will not result in death because sickness, being one of the great expressions of sin, will not have the final victory. And so right here at the very beginning of the story, we get this picture of what Jesus is up to. What Jesus is all about. The transferring of the authority from death and sin and into the life and love of Jesus Christ. And so John continues, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And so after he heard Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. And then he said to the, his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short time ago, the Jews there tried to kill you with stones. Are you still going back? Well, aren't there 12 hours of daylight? And anyone who walks during the day won't trip and fall. They can see because of the world's light. But when they walk at night, they'll trip and they will fall because they have no light. And after he said this, Jesus went on speaking to them. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, he said, but I am going there to wake him up. And his disciples replied, Lord, if he's sleeping, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking about the death of Lazarus, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. You know, there's probably just a ton of times in Jesus' journey with his disciples who were like, really, these are the 12 people I chose? Oh, come on, guys. Are you that? Oh, man, you, you, you're, like a, you're like a child. These are the 12 I decided to take with me to, to change the world? It's going to take two days' journey to travel to Lazarus. You would have woken up by the time we got there. Come on, guys. So then he had to tell them plainly, Lazarus is dead. 
And it's for your benefit. It's for your benefit. Isn't that an odd thing to say? Lazarus is dead, but it's for your benefit. I'm glad I wasn't there. I'm glad I wasn't there to heal him while he was still alive because now you will believe. Now you will believe. And so let us go to him. Now you will see the true authority of God in me. Now I will be glorified. Now God will be glorified because this experience is going to allow me to do something incredible. Then Thomas, who was called Didymus, spoke to the rest of the disciples. He said, let us go, he said. Then we can die with Jesus. When Jesus arrived, he found out that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. He's, he's very well dead, right? This isn't just a resuscitation. It's not like Lazarus had fallen asleep in the tomb or that he was just unconscious or he had fainted. He's been dead and locked away in this tomb for four days. He is very, very, very dead. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. Many Jews had come to Martha and Mary. They had come to comfort them because their brother was dead. And when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if only. And this if only, these are two very powerful words. In a lot of ways, they're very haunting words, don't you guys think? You know, we know from the other Gospels that Martha is a type A, highly organized, responsible firstborn. She got stressed out easily and was intent on making the world fair. She hated injustice. She wanted fairness everywhere she goes. She wanted an organized well-put-together system. She's not overly emotional, right? She's practical and she's driven. Yeah, she's mourning the death of her brother, but it doesn't stop her from going out into the countryside to meet Jesus because, hey, leaving the crowd, stopping the mourning and grieving process and going to do the responsible, hospitable thing, that's important. And so as the firstborn, type A, responsible personality, I'm going to leave the mourning process. I'm going to go and I'm going to meet and greet our guest, Jesus I mean, we're not even told that she cried. And so this if only isn't without a great deal of baggage and regret. This if only is one of those haunting phrases. Martha was the type who lived in a world of analysis. She always wondered what life could have been like if something possibly could have been different. I mean, did she make all of the right choices? Should she have done something different? I mean, she holds on to her past, and she holds on to the past and the mistakes and the guilt and the shame that comes with the past. She's tethered to it. Her past victories also create great pride in her, but her past mistakes make her suffer through the guilt and the shame that she has from them. Do we have any Marthas with us this morning? Any type A firstborn personalities here that want to control everything? In this case, she's full of regret. If only, if only something would have been different. I'm haunted by this. If only Jesus, if, if only something would have been different. Maybe, maybe G- Lazarus should have exercised more. You know, maybe he would have remained healthy. Or mainly, if, our only, if only our, our parents would have put so much pressure on him, they were always creating so much stress and anxiety. Maybe he had an ulcer and that's what got him sick. If only he wouldn't have gone to that party and met that crowd because that crowd introduced him to all sorts of drugs and alcohol and maybe that's what got him to be sick. If only I would have gotten that promotion at work, then we could have afforded better health care. 
And we could have provided better care for him and he would have remained healthy. You see, this if-only mentality is one that's enslaved to the past. It's one that looks backwards and says, if only the world would have been different, if only I would have made different choices, if only I would have done something different with my life, then right now wouldn't be so painful. Then right now I wouldn't be suffering like I am. For some reason it haunts you and it makes forgiveness really hard. Because you're always looking backward to to that stake in the ground of, of when you did that thing or, or how that thing impacted you or that decision you make or that mistake you made and you cannot move forward because you are tethered to it and you're shackled to it and your present is full of regret. But you know what? Life happened. The present is what the present is. Life happened. And so she says, if only you had been here, Jesus... Then my brother would not have died, right? Then I wouldn't be left here trying to figure out what to do with my estate all by myself because my sister, quite frankly, is kind of worthless. She doesn't really care. She's too free-flowing. She's too much of a hippie. I'm the responsible one, Jesus. All the burden of the family is now put upon my shoulders. I wouldn't be left here trying to care for my estate. I wouldn't be left here trying to make sure my sister stays alive. I wouldn't be left here looking at this empty checkbook, wondering how we're going to survive. If only you had been here, Jesus. Then my life would not have been like it is. Lazarus could still be living. Lazarus would still be here. He'd be your protector. He'd be the one who is taking care of the estate like a good older brother does. But I know that even now, God will give you, Jesus, anything you ask for. And so Jesus Will you restore Lazarus? Raise him from the dead, Jesus, because if Lazarus was here, then he could take care of the family business. If Lazarus was here, then he would take care of the estate. Then he could take care of Mary. Life would be great again. You know, if there's any hint of sin or of death in your life, then Jesus is not interested in bringing you back to that place. He wants to take your life that once was and he wants to wipe the whole thing clean and tear it all down and and allow you to live now into a new, beautiful future. He is not willing just to make things like they once were. He wants to make you new. And so Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again, Martha. And Martha, probably wondering why Jesus thought this would be comforting, sighs, I know he will rise again. This will happen when all people are raised from the dead on the last day, right? Martha was living in this once could have been but isn't reality. She's looking to the past, dreaming about what might have been but now cannot be. And so Jesus' suggestion really is a profound one because she's trapped in the past. She's trapped in what could have been, but Jesus' suggestion is a profound one. Instead of looking backwards, Martha, why don't you try looking forwards? And she, along with every Jew of their day, is well aware of what this promised future is like, right? They knew from Sunday school at the earliest of age about Isaiah 55 and 56 and Daniel 12, what God was going to take all of the brokenness and the horror and the pain and the suffering and the chaos in this world, and he was going to make it new. That's what God had promised way back when, 700 years before Jesus. God was going to take all of the brokenness, and he was going to make it new. He was going to recreate the world and all of the death and the sickness and the pain and the sorrow would be done away with. And at the end of time, everybody would be raised to new life. 
And so it's a nice gesture, Jesus, but right now, Martha is thinking, I am suffering. Right now, it's a nice gesture, Jesus, but right now, I am full of pain, and I am full of sorrow, and I am mourning the loss of my sick and dead brother. Right now, Jesus, your future hope really isn't helping a whole lot. But she isn't prepared for Jesus' response. That this promised future that God had promised 700 years prior to Jesus has burst forth into her present. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And anyone who believes in me will live even if they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God. I believe that you are the one who was supposed to come into the world. And so Jesus invites her to take a look at the future and that wonderful day that God has promised. Take a look at the future, Martha. Stop looking at the past. Take a look at the future. And then having looked at the future and understanding what that's about, he asks her to imagine how that promised future has been taken from the future and burst forth into her present reality, right? That the resurrection has come forward from the end of time right smack down into the middle of time. That Jesus has come from God's future into our present and that the resurrection that she learned about in Sunday school isn't just a doctrine, it's not just a fact, it is a person and he is standing in front of her. It's not just a good idea, it is a reality and it is standing in front of her. And now he's teasing Martha to make this huge jump of trust and hope. Martha, can you set aside your past? Do you believe that you are forgiven and that through me God will make you a new future? Do you believe that? I am the resurrection and the life. Death has been defeated. It no longer has authority. Right? All that's dead and broken and rotting, it will be done away with, and it can be raised to new life, and it will be done through Jesus Christ. He brings restoration with him. He brings healing with him. You know how we walk around and we bring death and we bring chaos everywhere we go? He brings healing. He brings restoration. He brings that promised future hope, and he brings it from the future, and he smacks it right down into your current situation. Do you believe this? And so Martha is met with this new reality that her if only can become an if Jesus. If Jesus is who she is coming to believe he is, then this pain I'm feeling will be replaced with hope. Do you believe this? If Jesus is the Messiah, the rightful ruler of the world, then death, death doesn't have mastery over me. Do you believe this? If Jesus is the Son of God, the one whom God is truly present, then God is here amidst the pain and the suffering of the world. Do you believe this? If Jesus is the embodiment of love, then hatred doesn't have to control you. Do you believe this? If Jesus is the one who forgives, then you do not have to be shackled to your past. Do you believe this? If Jesus is full of compassion, then you are not alone when you suffer. Do you believe this? And if Jesus is the resurrection and the life, then all the pain and the sorrow and the brokenness and the chaos of this current world will be replaced by God's new creation. Do you believe this? 
And these aren't just redundant questions, Resurrection, uh, Restoration Church. This is for us. Do you believe this? And all of this is true because God's future promise of a world void of pain and hurt and frustration and crying and anger and sin and death has been done away with and it is broke forth into our present condition, into our present world through Jesus Christ. Do you believe this? You see, that's how Jesus comforts Martha. She's a person who was very analytical and looking at her past and not able to get over the past. And, and he brings this promise of a future hope. And he brings it into her present reality. And it's very comforting to Martha. But then there is Mary. Mary is not like her sister, right? Mary is full of passion. She lives in the present and she allows the present, whether it's beautiful or full of pain, to fill her and to shape her. She pours herself into every situation. She's a bleeding heart who wears her emotions on her sleeve. And in this case, we'll soon see she weeps bitterly. uh, Mary's a crier. She's not one to keep an agenda. She doesn't keep a calendar, but she allows her feelings and her emotions to set her pace and direct her day. Do we have any Marys with us this morning? After she said this, she went back home. She called her sister Mary to one side to talk to her. The teacher is here, Martha said. He is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Jesus had not yet entered the village. He was still at the place where Martha had met him. Some Jews had been comforting Mary in the house. They noticed how quickly she got up and went out. So they followed her. They thought she was going to the tomb to mourn there. Mary reached the place where Jesus was. When she saw him, she fell at his feet. She said, Lord, if only you had been here. Then my brother would not have died, right? This is the exact same expression that Martha gave, but Jesus meets her very differently. Jesus saw that she was crying. He saw that the Jews had come along with her were crying also. And so his spirit became very sad and he was troubled. Where have you put him? He's asked. Well, come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. You see, Jesus doesn't try and convince Mary of the future hope and how that future hope is being brought into the present reality. He doesn't challenge her to stop living in regret and to allow God's future to begin to shape her. That's not how he interacts with Mary. He rather wraps his arms around her and he puts his head upon her shoulder and he begins to weep with her. You know, this may be one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture. And you need to know this morning that if you are in a a place of life experiencing pain and sorrow and frustration and and hurt and, and and you live wondering if there is any life, that Jesus is wrapping his arms around you and he is mourning and he is weeping alongside of you. Because when we look at Jesus, we're not just looking at the flesh and blood human, but the Word made flesh, right? The same Word that brought creation into being, that Word is weeping with you, mourning over the loss that you experience and the suffering you experience. God is present, and He is with you, and He is wrapping His arms around you, and He is weeping at your side. And if for one minute you believe that God doesn't care about you, And that he is not weeping alongside you in your pain and your struggling. That he is not suffering on your behalf. Then you do not know who God is. It's only when we stop and ponder this will we understand the full mystery of the gospel. It's when we put our pious, stoic notions of God aside. 
And we replace it with this picture of God weeping on our behalf. Will the word God really find meaning? Here is the man of sorrows, acquainted with our grief and pang, and he is sharing it and bearing it to the point of tears, and he is doing it with you today too. That is how he responds to Mary. And then the Jews said, see how much he loved him? But some of them said, he opened the eyes of the blind man. Couldn't he have kept this man from dying? Once more, Jesus felt very sad. He came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone in front of the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a very bad smell. Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. And then Jesus said, didn't I tell you that if you believe, you will see God's glory? You will see the authority of God transferred from death into life? And so they took the stone away. And then Jesus looked up. He said, Father, I thank you for hearing me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here. I said it so they will believe that you sent me. And then Jesus called in a loud voice. He said, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. His hands and his feet were wrapped with strips of linen. A cloth was around his face. And Jesus said to them, Take off his grave clothes and let him go. Let him be free. Death no longer has mastery over him. Let him be free. Right? Jesus strips death of its power. And because he has taken up his rightful authority, he puts death to death. And so Lazarus, the dead one, he comes to life. And he says, this is for your benefit, that you might believe that authority is now mine. And that the authority that death once had is no more, but it has been transferred upon me. Take off your grave clothes, Lazarus. You're free from the bondage of sin and of death. You're not dead anymore. The authority of death has been handed over to God, and so walk freely. I'm going to invite the band up, and we're going to reflect on this for a moment. You know, this story really foreshadows what eventually will take place in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus' death and resurrection was the great transfer of that authority. The authority that death and sin once had has now been transferred to Jesus Christ in his life. And because Jesus is glorified through his death and his resurrection, authority over sin and death is truly his. Restoration Church, do you believe this? And now he calls us too to take off our grave clothes and to walk freely. And here's where I think a lot of people might get hung up by this. You know, when we first noticed that there was this horrible smell in our kitchen, we were like, man, man, let's take out the trash because maybe it's in there. And then then we're like, man, that didn't do it, so let's clean out the fridge because there must be something in there rotting away. And that didn't do it. We're like, fine, let's let's go buy that pine-scented candle, right, and put that out there because that'll cut through it. But the pain just, the, the smell just persisted. Nothing changed until we actually removed the problem. Do you guys get that? That nothing changes until you actually remove the problem, right? The flies who lived and fed on death and decay, they swarmed until we got rid of the problem. And it's the same with our spirits. We, ha- we have pneumonia of the spirit, and it's killing us. We're dying from it, and we think, you know, maybe I'll just put a Band-Aid on my arm, because that'll cure the problem. Yeah, I I have this death inside of me, and it's killing me, but hey, what if I just put a bunch of Band-Aids on my skin? Because aren't Band-Aids designed and invented to heal? 
and to help in the healing process. So, hey, that's all I'm going to do. I'm just going to apply Band-Aids. We don't even realize that the problem is not with the surface of our skin. It's with our lungs. And applying this, this surface temperamental uh, solution to this problem is not going to cure the disease inside of us. And so a lot of us were like, maybe I'll just go to church. And I'll just try to start reading my Bible. I'm going to try to be a good person. And these are all good things, but they do not solve the problem. What we need is to put our death to death. What we need is to allow Jesus to make this great transfer of authority in our lives. We've come out of the grave, but we're still wearing our grave clothes. We're still wrapped in in grave clothes. We're still we're still bound to the death because even though we have come out of the grave, we are not walking freely. And so we need to get to the root of the problem. And, and, and too many people fail to live the life that Jesus offers them. Though they claim Jesus is the resurrection and the life because they keep their grave clothes on. Because Jesus, I, I, I know you forgive me, but I can't seem to forgive myself. And so I'm not going to cut that tether. I'm not going to dig up that stake in the ground. I'm not going to walk freely because I can't seem to forgive myself. Even though I know you've forgiven me, I'm still going to wear my grave clothes because I know that sin still has mastery over me. And so here's the thing. If you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, if you, uh, if you are bound and tethered and chained, shackled and imprisoned to things that you've done in your past, and, and by the way, if you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, I've just told you a truth about yourself. Whether you feel it or not, whether you recognize it or not, you are tethered to your past and you are shackled to a sin that you committed on your very first birthday as you breathed life into this world. You are a sinner separated from God. But Jesus Christ comes to you and he says, come out of the grave. You don't have to be tethered to that sin anymore. You do not have to be under the authority of that sin anymore. Come out of the grave. I have called you into life. And when you come out, do not just stand there consuming what he has given you, but take off your grave clothes and begin to walk freely into this world. Because forgiveness is a real thing, my friends. Grace is a real thing. God's love is a real thing and it can set you free. And if the Christianity you hold on to does not make you feel free, if the Christianity you hold on to does not liberate you, then you are not living Christianity. And if this sits home with you today and you're like, man, you know what, I, I, I do know Jesus. I'm a part of this church body. I come here regularly. I learn about who Jesus is regularly. And and I still, I'm still in the process of unwrapping myself. I'm still in the process of letting God unwrap me through his grace and his forgiveness. And you need to know it is a process, right? It's not like the grave clothes just vanished. They had to be unwrapped. They had to be taken off. And so my encouragement to you is to continue to persist, to know who Jesus is, and to explore the mystery of his great love. Do that here on Sunday mornings. We invite you all back next week to learn more of who God is to learn more of his great love for you. 
and to begin to apply it to your life. And what you'll find is that forgiveness becomes a real thing. And, and you, you might be looking at that, that, that chain and that stake that you put in the ground so many years ago, and you, if you're, you're trying to dig it up, and it's really hard. And you know what? The more you learn of God's love and the more you learn of his forgiveness, there will come a day when, when you've been trying so hard to forgive yourself, and all of a sudden, one day, the stake is pulled up without any challenge. It's like your King Arthur removing a sword from a stone. God's love is mysterious and it's deep and it's true. We invite you here to learn more about that, to continue to take off those grave clothes, to walk freely into this world, to know that authority is no longer death's, but it is God's and he is life. I bet your households would appreciate it if you did that. I bet you your spouses and your children, if you were married and you have kids, would appreciate that. And I know that you will appreciate it as well because you will become a new person. God will make you new. Amen? Amen.